Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. There is so much Joe Biden wants to do, including resetting America's relations with the rest of the world and restoring America's reputation. I'm recording this, for example, on the day that Joe Biden is expected to announce that he wants and intends to allow a whole lot more refugees into the United States than his predecessor did. So his intentions are many and they're good, but I keep wondering whether he's going to be able to do them, to make good on them. It's a concept of bandwidth that is constantly coming back to me, uh, that word. And partly it's coming back to me because of the person who I think may have used it first with me, which is going back a long time ago, more than two decades, when a then rising star in the British, then Labour government, he was head of the Downing Street Policy Unit at the time, used that word, and he is David Miliband, went on to become Foreign Secretary in that same Labour government. He was talking back then, in the late 90s, about the war that was being fought in the Balkans, in Kosovo, and whether the American administration that uh, David Miliband was then dealing with, whether they had the bandwidth uh, to take on anything else. And probably that was a very newfangled term at the time uh, back then. As you can tell, I've known him for a long time, so long, in fact, that, as you'll hear, he calls me Johnny rather than Jonathan. Right now, he's the Chief Executive Officer and President of the International Rescue Committee, a huge NGO involved in work right across the globe. He sits in New York City. He's been there some seven years. Uh, When we spoke, it was ahead and before Joe Biden's announcement about refugees. And I reminded him of that observation from the late 1990s about bandwidth. And so I began our conversation by asking him whether he thought Joe Biden and the Biden administration would have the bandwidth to cope with everything else in the world, given the fact it has to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. The short answer to that is yes, Johnny. And I say that for two reasons. First of all, COVID is connected to other issues. It's connected to other domestic issues, most notably in the economy. But it's also connected to other international uh, issues, most notably in the way the US positions itself in the multilateral system. The second reason why I think they do have the bandwidth to do more than COVID, although clearly it's the case that COVID is the preeminent crisis that they've got to fight, 
is that there's no holiday from history. There's no chance to say, well, we'll sort out our domestic problems and come back in a few years' time when America's ready. The world's moving on. And fortunately, he's got a team that he trusts, a team that know him, and a team that can go about his administration's business without there being a complete logjam on decision-making. Now, that's not to say that this isn't going to be a presidency like every other that has to prioritize. It's not going to be able to do everything it says it wants to do at the speed it wants to do it at the same time. But I think that one of the experiences that we can come on to talk about is they've learned the importance of prioritization. And so I think that the short answer is, yes, they, they should be held accountable for delivering on more than the COVID crisis. You mentioned uh, experience being the teacher there. I mean, did you have yourself experience of the problem you've just identified with the Trump administration, where you could not get any decision out of them because it depended on the whim of this one man? No, because the issue with the Trump administration is that they uh, had a very clear set of precepts that they applied to international aid and refugees. So uh, everyone in the administration knew that their job was to cut the amount of money going on overseas aid. Everyone knew that they wanted to reduce the number of refugees coming into America and the help going to refugees around the world. Those are two vital parts of what the International Rescue Committee does. So the issue with the Trump administration was not bandwidth. It was policy. I mean, they were sadly competent in the way they went ahead with slashing the number of refugees coming into America. Uh, Congress forestalled some of their attacks on overseas aid. But through the use of executive orders, uh, for example, in uh, limiting services to women and girls, reproductive health services to women and girls around the world, they did a lot of damage uh, in an extremely, quote unquote, efficient way. It wasn't a technical problem. It was a policy problem. You issued very soon after Joe Biden's inauguration a a sort of nine-point plan, a list of recommended policies for the first year of the Biden presidency, particularly in the areas that your organisation works. Uh, You know, many things that I think our listeners would absolutely be on board with about increasing threefold the funding uh, against, you know, to prevent gender-based violence, to uh, reorder US aid priorities by rushing 50% more overseas aid to the world's worst conflict zones and so on. But one of your proposals leapt out at me, and that was to immediately raise the number of refugees that the United States itself takes and to commit to resettling 125,000 refugees in the US uh, in time for the next fiscal year. And I just thought, wondered, you know, you're somebody, you've been an elected politician yourself, do you think you could ever get American politicians, mindful of their voters, to do that, given where people are in America and around the world on the notion of migration and admission of refugees? Well, not all politicians, but some politicians, yes. And the 125,000 figure is the one that then-candidate Biden used on World Refugee Day last June the 20th. He said, look, Ronald Reagan admitted more refugees to America than anyone else, more than 200,000 in the early 1980s, many from Vietnam, South Vietnam. And candidate Biden said, I'll get up to 125,000. Now, the historic average has been about 90,000 refugees a year allowed into America. That's obviously a small number compared to what we now know is a global refugee population, people forced from their homes by violence, persecution, conflict of 30 million. President Trump reduced 
the number from the 95,000 that was in the last year of the of the Obama administration down to 15,000. So he's effectively zeroed out the program. And what we've been saying to the Biden administration what, is that this program should have bipartisan support. Uh, so the answer to your question is politicians shouldn't be afraid of this. So I suppose what I'm getting at is that what you're saying there to, you know, some people will sound absolutely common sense, but whether or not over the last few years there has been a hardening of the heart that where you know those outstretched arms to welcome in and embrace refugees you know Angela Merkel tried it in 2015 but it what didn't really fly in many, in many places else and i just wonder if that you've seen in fact i'm going to add, to add to that too just this point from your nine point plan which was about the vaccine and you suggested that the united states should share uh, the estimated 235 million already purchased excess covid-19 vaccines with low income countries and there's just a big debate going on in Britain now about you know the surplus vaccines and I'm just wondering if that's harder now because as I say that whether you detect a hardening of the heart towards others especially those far away. Well I, I, these are harder times there's no question about it I'm not sitting here with rose-tinted uh, spectacles but the question is do you run away from hard questions and hard choices or do you address them and my argument is that unless you address them the problem's get worse. And we know from the European refugee crisis that you mentioned, that one of the things that uh, completely torpedoes any attempt to help refugees is if it's not well managed. And in 2015-16, when um, one and a half million people arrived in Europe, there wasn't, for example, a proper system of checking people in and registering them when they arrived. And that infuriated a lot of Europeans. And so uh, we, we shouldn't be rose tinted about it. We shouldn't pretend that these are easy questions. But we should address them in a in a fact based way that is in in line with values. Doesn't pretend that one country can do everything. Now, on the COVID question, I think there's a similar point. Look, the US has ordered 235 million more vaccines than it needs. So the excess vaccine point, I think, is a practical way of recognizing that, of course, the first responsibility of government is to its own citizens. But those who say that our responsibility ends at the nation's borders are not doing any justice to the citizens within those borders because we live in an interdependent world. This was always my argument or my fear when people threw up their hands in horror at President Trump saying America first. I will always put America first, just like you as the leaders of your countries will always and should always Put your countries first. You have to remember, every citizen wants their own country first, but the argument should have been, you don't put America first by pretending that there's no world beyond your borders. It's absolutely imperative. I mean, John F. Kennedy gave a speech in 1962 on American Independence Day, and it was entitled The Declaration of Interdependence. That was 60 years ago. And the world has become more connected since then. And problems far away that are not dealt with get bigger and will crash through in, into our uh, lives if, we don't, if we're not part of the solution. So putting the history aside, you, in a way, have no problem with the idea of America first, so long as it's the rest of the world next. The COVID crisis is the ultimate demonstration of why isolationism is going to lead to impoverishment and insecurity. But just on the specifics with the vaccine, do you think those excess vaccines should just be given away to the rest of the world, the low-income countries, or do you think Britain and America should charge for the vaccines they give? Well, America, Britain and America have already 
made clear that far from charging, they're actually paying for um, global vaccines. That's the whole point of this COVAX facility, which is a World Health Organization sponsored initiative to make sure that there are global vaccines available. And just last week, the World Health Organization gave regulatory go ahead uh, for some of the vaccines to be purchased by COVAX. Now, unfortunately, it means that COVAX is low down the queue because of the companies are now selling for the fourth quarter of this year or, frankly, into the middle of next year. And for the people that we serve at the International Rescue Committee, it'll be really surprising to me if next year most of them get the vaccine. This is a long tunnel for people who are in poor countries. And frankly, the only way they're going to get it is if it's subsidised by the richer countries. And even if they are, the poorest people in the world may not get it till 2023, it sounds like. Let me just ask you about a speech you made uh, recently. I was going to say in London. It was to London because it was like everything else. It was online and remote. But you spoke a very powerful speech to the Holocaust Educational Trust. But there was one bit in there which leapt out at me simply because you are, as well as working internationally, you do live in the United States. You live in New York. I think you've been there now for some seven years. And you said about America, the most powerful country in the democratic world is undergoing going an unprecedented attack on its democratic system by significant sections of one of its two political parties. Now, you know, no prize if you're guessing who you're talking about. You're talking about the Republican Party. That is a pretty um, severe conclusion you've drawn. How do you contextualise that? And what do you think is the way out of it? The speech was about what I see as a global battle over the next decade. And it's a battle between Impunity on the one hand, the rise of impunity, the exercise of power without responsibility, the ultimate definition of impunity. And on the other hand, accountability. And I see that over the last 15 years in international policy and in domestic policy, there has been this rise of impunity. Now, the second point is that what's happened in the United States, I think, should be alarming. And I don't just mean the storming of the nation's capital, the legislative assembly you have a significant section, as I said in my speech, of the Republican Party, according to some estimates, 70% members of the House of Representatives Republican Caucus, voting not to accept the result of the 2020 presidential election. Now, nothing could be more serious, really, in a democratic system. And once norms are broken, the norm of losers' consent, that if you lose an election, you accept it, the fact that in a two-party system, significant sections of one of the parties should be refusing to accept the result could not be more serious. Are you frustrated that you're limited in how much you can say on this there? Because A, you're not a citizen and B, uh, you're running a charity and therefore you've got to be, you know, studily non-partisan. Yes, I mean, it's different. I mean, I'm obviously not in active politics and I'm not a citizen here, so I can't participate in American politics. And I take seriously the need for the International Rescue Committee to be non-partisan. I mean, we navigated the Trump years very carefully by speaking to policy, not personality. If you like, in a, to use a British terminology, we played the ball, not the man. And hmm. that was really important to us, I think, to uphold our own status. It wasn't just a legal obligation. I think it was a, it, it was important because we, we talk a lot about the need for humanitarian action to be based on good evidence, to be hard-headed, to be value for money. And I think that there are values baked into the organization, very important 
values that go back to the origins of the organization, that the zeal of the fight against discrimination, and racism, persecution it is deep in the DNA. And so um, there are values, but we also are, are very zealous in trying to sustain the idea that a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, open society depends on people of all political persuasions and none. And so are there frustrations built into that? Yes, of course there are. And does that mean that I'm playing a different role now than in previous lives, in previous parts of my life? Yes, of course. But there are, there are, you know, it's not, there are upsides as well as downsides, I would say. And I think that we need an active civil society more than ever if representative politics is not to be just buffeted by the latest social media sensation. Let me put to you a question that was recently put to the Prime Minister here, and you have a better vantage point than he does because you're you're living there day in, day out. Which And the question was, is Joe Biden and was Joe Biden woke? Well, is he passionate about fighting discrimination? Yes, of course. He has shown in the early days of the administration that he means business. And the scars of racism are so deep in this society. It's long past time for some big changes to be made. Now, whether you want to call that woke or not, the Prime Minister seemed a bit flustered by the question. But I think what I would, the way I would have answered it is to say, look, I think Joe Biden's serious. He's serious about taking on some scars, treating some scars in the American body politic. I suppose what I had in mind a bit was that it seemed to me that he had some skill in avoiding the kind of culture war issues. And, that you know, for example, it was noted that Kamala Harris has now put her pronouns in her Twitter biography, as Twitter profile. I don't think she had those in, though, before November the 3rd when they were seeking election. And I'm just wondering whether the lesson that you would draw from the Biden-Harris victory is that you are probably wisest to avoid those issues when you're campaigning, even if you take a good, serious and strong stance once you've won. I think that the lesson of the Biden-Harris campaign is far less tactical than than you suggest. The the lesson of the campaign is that you have to be gimlet-eyed in your goal. And the goal has to be founded on a very clear understanding of why you're running and a very clear proposition about what you're going to do instead. And the bookends of the Biden campaign were the Charlottesville riot in 2017, which, yeah. brought Joe, which Joe Biden says brought him into the campaign. He saw the America that he was proud of under threat, and he thought, he worried that there was no one else in the field who was going to be able to beat President Trump. Well, the other bookend was the 6th of January, where the wheel had come full circle and the riot in Charlottesville had moved to an insurrection that was the other bookend. And President Biden had a very clear rationale for his disagreement with President Trump. And he turned that rationale into a proposition of his own candidacy. And of course, that included issues of racial justice. And I think the lesson is far less about, it's far less tactical. It's it's far more fundamental You've got to know why you disagree with the government you're trying to replace, and you've got to be able to show that you've got the ideas and the ability to then do something about it. You are in the unusual position, uh, not many people around, who are veterans of a centre-left government that was elected not once, not twice, but three times. Given that experience, do you have 
advice for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the Democrats, not about winning once, because they've done that in November 2020, but about keeping majorities, and I suppose in Congress, expanding those majorities because they're wafer thin. I think that uh, they've got their own consultants and their own ideas more than mine. But here's the thing that we, I think, didn't do well. My former colleague, Phil Wilson, who was the MP for Sedgefield, he said we were elected on the 1st of May 1997, and we stopped reforming the party on the 2nd of May 1997. And we didn't pay a price for that until 2010. But um, in, when I say that if you want to remove a government, you've got to be clear about your disagreement. You've got to be clear in your proposition. But the third element is you've got to organize for change. And the, the power of that was shown in the hard-fought wins by a matter of one percentage point, 0.4 percentage points in Georgia. So you've got to keep you've got to keep your politics. And I think uh, when I referred earlier to this being an administration with experience, uh, what I and I said that I thought it was important. Here's why I think it's important. My my feeling is my understanding is that many of those who suffer, who, who served in the Obama administration, uh, their experience is not that they want to do the same. Their experience has taught them they've got to do different. And one of the things that they have to do different is that they have to make sure that they don't neglect the politics. Because in the early years of the Obama administration, it's clear that they got outplayed politically. They lost that Senate seat that belonged to or that was sat in by Edward Kennedy. They lost his seat after a year in Massachusetts, of all places. And they lost control of the politics. And I think that the appointments and the plans that the Biden administration set out show that they don't just want to to govern. They want to continue to recognize that they're a political party, not just an administration. And it's interesting, if you think about it, we use the term government and they use the term administration in America. And a government um, is intended to be political. The danger of a, of a quote unquote administration is that it's just technocratic. And I think this administration, this group of people don't want to fall into that trap. David, we always ask a what else question when we can for pe- to people who come on the podcast. So this time, Jared Kushner being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. What do you think about that? <laughs> is that is this a is this fiction or is this um, <laughs> is this fact? I, 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 what, I think what, Trump's what, lawyer Alan Dershowitz has submitted the name of Jared Kushner because of the deal, the peace deals done between Israel and various Gulf states, and therefore think he should win the Nobel Peace Prize. What do you reckon? This is news to me. I, I think the, the only iron law I know of in respect of the um, Nobel Prizes is that if you campaign for them, you are doomed never to get it. So um, that's that's all I would say, that the, the, the Nobel Committee make an absolute fetish that any campaigning is uh, not just frowned upon is a is an immediate torpedo on your on your chances you do you sound as if you've got some experience in this field surely not no, well actually i do i know about um there's a couple of people and a couple of institutions that previously have and it's rebounded on them very badly and one of the very nice things about the world food program winning the nobel peace prize in december was that was precisely because they'd been mission-driven and gone about their business, they'd never bothered with with that. It's just a golden rule. David Miliband, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Johnny. 
And to hear more about what's happening in David's old stamping ground of Westminster, do make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of Politics Weekly, where Heather Stewart looks at the problems facing Northern Ireland after Brexit and at Rishi Sunak's quandary over universal credit ahead of the budget, as well as much more. You can search for that in the same feed where you found us. But for now, it's goodbye from me. The producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. I hope you're all keeping well. And as always, thanks so much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 